Plus you've got an, an outline sheet which uh, will help you uh, as we proceed through this portion. Uh, on the back there's a chart which are always helpful. Uh, we have seen this one before, but um, um, you, I don't know where you put it. You're probably, it's probably not with you tonight, so uh, we'll give you another copy. At the beginning of World War II, 200,000 Japanese troops forced General Douglas MacArthur, who was the commander of the US forces, to withdraw from the Philippine Islands. But he made a promise to the discouraged Filipinos. I shall return. And two and a half years later, on the 20th of October 1944, MacArthur stood again on the soil in the Philippines and said, this is the voice of freedom. People of the Philippines, I have returned. And if you think that a man can have that kind of credibility, and if you can appreciate that quality in a man, I'll tell you that Jesus Christ, the God-man, made the same promise far more credible than any human being ever could. If you wrestle with the truth of Jesus' return, then wrestle no longer. If you accept the historical fact of his ascension, then you have no room to doubt the historic yet future return of Jesus Christ to the earth. He said, I shall come again. And he will. And when he does, his second coming will be so much different from his first. At his first coming, he rode a donkey. His second coming, he rides a white horse. At his first coming, he was a suffering servant. At his second coming, he will come as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords. At his first coming, he came in humility and meekness. At his second coming, he will come in majesty and power. At his first coming, he came to suffer the wrath of God for sinners. At his second coming, he will establish the kingdom of God for saints. At his first coming, he was rejected by many as Messiah. At his second coming, he will be, he will be recognized by all as Lord. At his first coming, he came to seek and to save the lost. At his second coming, he will come in wrath to judge his enemies. The return of Jesus Christ to the earth at his second coming is a very prominent theme in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, one-fifth of the Bible is prophecy, and yet one-third of those prophecies relate in some way to Christ's second coming. There are at least 333 prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament. Only 109 were fulfilled at his first advent, leaving 224, that's twice as many, to be fulfilled at his second advent. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 speak of events related to first Christ's first coming, while 30 sp 36 speak of events connected with his second coming. The Lord Jesus himself, on 25 occasions, made predictions concerning his second coming. 
And throughout the New Testament, there are more than 50 exhortations for people to be ready for the return of Christ. In other words, the second coming of Christ to the earth is a thoroughly scriptural doctrine. And the portion of scripture that we read this evening is a fulfillment of many Old Testament and even New Testament prophecies. Often the rapture of the church is referred to as the second coming. Yet it is important to understand that the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. At the rapture he comes for his saints. At the second coming he comes with his saints. At the rapture, Jesus will not descend to the earth. At the, at the second advent, at the second coming of Christ, he will come to the earth. He will stand upon the Mount of Olives. At the rapture, Jesus will bring a blessing for his saints. At the second coming, he will bring judgment to those who have rejected him. At the rapture, the rapture could occur at any moment. The second coming will occur seven years after the seven years of tribulation. The rapture is a mystery revealed in the New Testament, not revealed in the Old Testament. But the second coming of Christ is revealed in the Old Testament and in the New. It's not a mystery. At the rapture, only believers will see Christ. At the second coming, every eye shall see him. After the rapture, the tribulation will come to the earth, a time of wrath. After the second coming, Jesus will establish his messianic kingdom, time, an age of blessing. Clearly, as we rightly divide the word of truth, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. And now what we see here in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, this is the second coming of Christ. It is that climactic event that the saints through the ages have longed for, have prayed for. Indeed, it is the final words of Christ in the very last verse of the New Testament. He says, surely I come quickly, which is followed by the final prayer of anticipation and expectation in the New Testament. The very last phrase in the last sentence of the New Testament, even so come, Lord Jesus. And the Apostle John's vision of the second coming of Christ focuses on three aspects of his return. They're listed for you as major headings there on your outline sheet this evening. Firstly, it is this, that Jesus will return in glory and power. And truly, there is not a more glorious description of our coming King in all of the Bible than these verses, verses 11 to 16 of chapter 19. Verse 1 tells us that John sees heaven opened for Christ's descent. Heaven opened for his return to the earth. Now back in chapter 4 verse 1, John tells us he saw a door opened in heaven. But here heaven itself is open. And these two openings, chapter 4 verse 1, chapter 19 verse 11, present two pivotal points in the book of Revelation. They mark a clear distinction between the rapture of the church, where Jesus is coming for his church, where they're caught up through that door into heaven, a distinction between that, and then the second advent when Jesus returns from heaven with his saints. 
All of the church age who are raptured and enter into heaven through that door, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, will come again with Christ when heaven is opened here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Here we see the commencement of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the real and actual appearing of Jesus Christ upon the earth. For centuries, the scoffers have been saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now they're about to be silenced. Here Jesus is seen as a rider on a white horse. Notice how John describes him. How can you describe him? How is it possible to describe him? Truly, language is not sufficient to adequately describe the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and in glory. And yet John tries. He resorts to names or titles and descriptions and images. He tells us that he has five names. Four are revealed, one is concealed. Two names are revealed in verse 11. He's called faithful and true. He's called faithful and true back in the vision of the glorified Christ back in chapter 1. And now he is, that, there he is in heaven, but now he's coming from heaven. Very, very same glorified Christ. Now returning to the earth. Faithful conveys dependability, reliability, trustworthiness. True affirms that he is authentic and genuine and the real thing. What he says you can believe. What he does you can trust. In fact, as the faithful and true one, he can do what no other king can do, what no other warrior can do. He can, in righteousness judge and make war notice that the verb there is in the present tense indicating the permanent character of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his acts he's always faithful he's always true and therefore he's always righteous in whatever he does including making war verse 12 tells us that he has a name written that no man knew but he himself. This is the third name. It's a concealed name. A hidden and secret name. Which means at the very least that the human mind cannot grasp the depth of his being. Which means that for all eternity we will continue to grow in our knowledge and in our wonder of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Put your mind at rest. Not for a minute will you be bored in heaven, not for all eternity, as we contemplate the wonder of Christ. The fourth name of the returning king is revealed at the end of verse 13. He is, his name is called the Word of God. Christ has always been the eternal Word, that eternal Word which became flesh, that his own and his own people would not receive him. This is the very word that spoke the worlds into being. And as the eternal word, he is always the expression of God. He's always the perfect communication of God, always the perfect revelation of God. And in his next appearing on earth, 
He will exercise full authority, expressing his father's mind, expressing his father's will, his father's wrath against sin, against all who received him not, against all who reject and oppose him. That is the issue. And the judgment of God hangs upon your decision about what you do with Jesus Christ, whether you receive him or whether you don't. That is the issue upon which the judgment of God hangs. Jesus Christ can do all of this because he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's his fifth name mentioned in verse 16. That is an Old Testament title for God. And here it's used of Christ to affirm his sovereignty over all competing earthly rulers. He alone is sovereign king and lord. He is the absolute sovereign, the sole ruler of the earth. He now presents himself as such. This is his official title. It belongs to him. As the nobleman in the parable went away into a far country, he now returns to establish his kingdom. And at last... The government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice and with judgment henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And here we see the Lord Jesus Christ in his zeal. It's a complete fulfillment of Psalm 2. Psalm 24, this is the gates opening so the king of glory can come in. Now having given us five names, John also provides us with four descriptions. In verse 12, John says, His eyes are a flame of fire which speak of his penetrating judgment and insight. He peers into the very depths of our soul. As he did in chapter 1, he peers in the very depths of our soul. Every thought, every act, every motive... He knows you as no one else knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And such a reality should thrill us but also terrify us. It should greatly humble us. To know that he knows us in all of our sin, in all of our depravity, in all of our wickedness and yet he loves us so much that he go to the cross to save us. To know you and me as he does and still love us as he does. Simply another evidence of his amazing grace, which, friends, we can't possibly ignore. We cannot possibly ignore. Don't reject the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Receive him as your only Savior. Cry out in forgiveness, lest rejecting him you meet him as your judge. Secondly, unlike the beast who in chapter 13 has a crown, fragile and temporary, verse 12 tells us that Jesus Christ wears many crowns. The Greek word is diadems, golden bands representing sovereign authority. Mostly, most earthly kings will be crowned with one diadem, but Christ has many crowns representing the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords, expressing the magnitude of his absolute sovereignty. Third description of Jesus is mentioned in verse 13. 
and he was clothed with vesture dipped in blood. This is not his own blood shed upon the cross. This is the blood of his enemies. Say that for two reasons. Number one, his garments will become blood splattered in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6, which tells us of the Messiah coming and delivering the remnant of Israel in Bosra. There they are in the tribulation period. They fled to the land of Eden to escape the wrath of the Antichrist. And the prophecy of Isaiah 63 says, Who is this that comes with his clothing all bloody? It's the one who comes to redeem the remnant of his people, Bosra. And then secondly, his garments become blood spattered when he destroys the armies at Armageddon. Go back to chapter 14, we've read about that. It's clothed with vesture dipped in blood. Fourthly, in verse 14, it tells us when the king returns, he will be accompanied by armies. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed with fine linen, white and clean. And these armies, note that it's plural. These armies consist of both angels and believers. There are numerous places in the New Testament where Jesus said, and the Apostle Paul said, that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, angels will be with him in exercising judgment upon the earth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, First and Second Thessalonians, also in the book of Jude. But the saints of this age are included in this group as well. In light of the fact that they are, what does it say here? arrayed in fine linen, white and clean, which takes us back to chapter 8, uh, sorry, verse 8 of uh, chapter 19, where we saw that such arraignment was the righteousness of the saints, the, the, the bride of Christ. Marriage supper of the land, then set, they are coming with Christ at the second advent now. But the armies would also include Old Testament believers. We get that from the book of Jude, also the book of Daniel. It would also include the tribulation saints who've been martyred for their faith. They will return with Christ in their glorified bodies. We shouldn't miss the observation that it says the armies follow him. When we return with Christ, he's out in front. He leads the way. He fights the battle for us. As a matter of fact, we won't even be participants in the battle. We'll be there only as spectators. King Jesus did not need our assistance or help when he came the first time to redeem sinners. Nor does he need our assistance and help when he comes the second time to reign as sovereign. He wins the day. Again, on the behalf of those who love him and trust him. Now, in addition to those four descriptions, John also uses three images to further describe Christ. Three images in verse 15. Those three images are the sword, the rod, and the winepress. And together they depict the unparalleled authority of this returning king. Again, there are many Old Testament 
prophecies, Old Testament scriptures that drive the argument of these verses. Verse 15, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. That imagery comes from Isaiah 11. His powerful words are the means by which what he will smite the nation who's joined in battle against him. Jesus will defeat the wicked nations in such, the, such, the, such, such a way, in much the same way as he defeated the demonic powers during his earthly ministry. That is what? Just through his word. Secondly, verse 15, he will rule them. Literally, he will shepherd them with an, a rod of iron, with an iron rod. The imagery there comes from Psalm 2. Also Isaiah 11. Jesus will conquer the nations with an iron scepter or staff who uses to destroy those who defy him and those who prey upon his sheep. And furthermore in verse 15 he says that he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And the imagery portrays grapes being trampled underfoot until the juice is squeezed out of them. But here it's blood, not grape juice, that comes forth out of the winepress of God's wrath. This harkens back to Isaiah 63. Jesus can judge the world in such vivid wrath because he is almighty God which emphasises sovereign power to conquer and to condemn. This portrait of a warrior Messiah leaves no room for a sentimental view of God. Again, notice that he's the only one who engages in the conflict. He's the one who smites the nation. The armies are merely there for the view. Jesus Christ can do all these things because he's king of kings and lord of lords. He alone is the sovereign king and lord. He has no equal. He has no competition. He possesses full and divine authority, absolute power over all things. This is who he is. This is who is coming. This is the day that his followers look for, pray for, sing for. You know, we sing that hymn. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. When we sing that hymn, we're proclaiming his second coming. Secondly, Jesus will return to judge all who reject him. Verses 17 and 18. As the Apostle Paul anticipated his own coming execution. This is what he wrote. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give in to me in, me in that day, and not to me only, but to all those also that love his appearing. And then as the Apostle John got closer and closer to the end of his life, this is what he wrote. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, for we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It is sad, it is tragic, it is heartbreaking beyond words that unbelievers do not share, cannot share in the believer's hope, nor in the joy of the believer's rewards. 
For them, there is no hope. Only horrible and terrifying destruction and judgment. Verse 17 tells us, for them, there will be no escape. Verse 17, John sees an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice saying, to the fowls of that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God. The Greek word for fowls there is not the general word for birds. It speaks of an eagle or a vulture. Vultures are voracious eaters who descend swiftly on carrion and will devour it in minutes. And they are called, come, gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God. And this supper is much different from the marriage supper of the Lamb we see back in verse 9. There the saints are come, are called to come and to celebrate their union with Christ, celebrate with the Lord. But here the sinners are called to a, a vulture's banquet where they themselves are the meal. It's a great supper. It's a supper of the great God because there... All rebellious sinners of the earth will be present. Try as they may, there will be no escape. In verse 18, we see that there will be no discrimination. Notice those whom these vultures are called to prey upon. Verse 18. That ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. In other words, everyone will participate in one of these two prophetic feasts. The righteous will be called to join in the marriage supper of the land and those who reject Christ will become the feast at the great supper of the great God. God will judge the wicked from every social category. Social status or rank will not be enough to exempt anyone from the judgment. Captains and kings and mighty men, free and bond, all will be judged. God is no respecter of persons. In his offer of salvation goes out to everyone. And in his judgment, he issues it without discrimination. It's a universal day of reckoning. Everyone will be held accountable for their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a grim and terrible picture, but one that we must expect to come to pass. Ezekiel prophesied concerning it in the same detail that we read here in Revelation. And so there's no use trying to downplay the reality of the vision. Jesus himself alluded to the final outcome of this judgment. In Matthew 24, verse 27, he said, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there shall the eagles be gathered together. There's a warning here. It's a warning of the folly of rejecting Jesus Christ. In the final three verses, we see that Jesus will return to defeat all who oppose him. 
verses 19 to 21, we see this uh, confederacy of evil forces under the leadership of the beast and the false prophet. They come, they're arrayed against Christ. They are seen, verse 19, gathered together to make war against him. The revived Roman Empire, including the monarchs of the Ten Kingdoms, they're all assembled there together. The long-awaited battle of Armageddon is finally here. It's been predicted in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Revelation 14, Revelation 16. And yet, in one sense, it will be a tremendous disappointment if you're expecting a good fight because it'll be over very, very quickly. It'll last but for a moment. Before anyone can scarcely mention the word Armageddon, the battle will be over. Just the word, just a word from his mouth. Martin Luther in his classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, wrote of how God deals with Satan and his devices. What's he say? One little word shall fell him. And when the king returns, that's exactly what happened. In verses 9 and 20, we see that Jesus will capture his enemies. In verse 19, the beast, that is the Antichrist, gathers with his armies together against the returning king. And so swift and complete will be his, his destruction that the text doesn't even describe it. It simply reports the result in verse 20. Both the beast and the false prophet are captured. And notice that the deceptive ministry and the lying propaganda of the false prophet are specifically addressed here. It was through, through false miracles and signs that they deceived the followers of the beast. And that certainly serves us as a reminder that not everything that appears to be a miracle is a miracle. And not everything that is a miracle is a miracle from God. Captured and condemned. The two words that describe the future of the false prophet and the beast and all who worship him and all who say no to the, God of, to, to the grace of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus will capture his enemies. Jesus will then destroy his enemies. Judgment falls first upon the beast and then upon the false prophet. Verse 20 goes on by saying... These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. These two are the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire. These verses do not have a hint of annihilation about them. Their eternal destiny is one of conscious torment and eternal separation from God. And this record here is simply a confirmation of the witness of Jesus Christ who said more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And the great drama of the earth's hostilities is drawing to a close. The seed of the woman is crushing the serpent's head. And the followers of these two wicked men who once said, who is like under the beast? Who is able to make war against him? They now have their answer as their leaders are cast alive into the lake of fire. There were two Old Testament saints, Enoch and Elijah, who were taken up alive into heaven 
these two enemies of Christ are taken alive into the lake of fire. And then we read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that is, at the end of the millennium, we read that a thousand years later, they're still there in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. In verse 21, John concludes his description of the Lord's second coming by relating what will happen to the survivors of the Great Tribulation who have followed the Antichrist. He gives us a final and unforgettable picture of the destiny of those who have said no to God. We see that they are killed by the divine sword coming out of the mouth of Christ and the birds will gorge on their flesh. Commentator John Phillips puts it this way. Then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous loudmouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle working windbag from the pit is punctured and still. Another word and the panic stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall. End quote. And let this be a solemn warning to all who still will reject Christ. I sound the alarm because I must. God has done everything to save you. He sent his virgin-born son who lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death upon the cross, paid the price for our sin, took the punishment that we deserve, laid all of our sins on him who will forgive our sins and give us his righteousness if we'll but turn from sin and turn to Christ, believing, calling upon him for salvation. You must come to Christ and receive him. Rebellion against him means doom. No weapon formed against him shall prosper. And if you decide to take issue with these things, you must deal with the one who is the author of them. What is your response? Will you receive Christ as saviour or will you have him as your judge? Just two summary points as we close. Number one, Christ will return as a conquering lion rather than as a docile lamb. In our love-starved culture, there's a great danger of overemphasizing the love of God to the exclusion of his holiness. 
And Jesus will return in power because there is a final battle to be fought against the enemies of God and we dare not attempt to domesticate the lion. He comes to destroy his enemies and to establish his universal reign. And any view of God that eliminates God's judgment upon sin, God's hatred of sin in favour of some sentimental affection finds no support in the realism of the book of Revelation. Secondly, opposing Christ will have catastrophic results. From the perspective of Christ's enemies, this passage spells disaster. Defeat, destruction, death, judgment and eternal punishment. God will defeat his enemies. He will destroy evil. But our role, brethren, differs from God's role. He fights and we follow. And our following includes loving our enemies and praying for those who despitefully use us. And this text recalls the terrible fate of those who rebel against God. And whilst we rejoice in the knowledge that God will bring justice and conquer evil, we simultaneously need to be praying for the conversion of unbelievers and seek to love them into the kingdom of God. He's a holy God who does judge sin, who will judge your sin, but will forgive your sin, having judged it in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have, in in opening the scriptures, you open to us the prophetic future, as sure and certain as anything in the past. Thank you for the reminder of who Jesus Christ is and what he will do. Thank you for revealing to us our future destinies. Wherever we are in regards to Jesus Christ, our future destinies he revealed. Either we are for Christ and we will be taken to him and will return with him, or we're against Christ and will remain under condemnation and judgment but we we thank you heavenly father that uh, salvation is possible for everyone freely offered to all and so within reach so simple that all can receive it believe on the lord jesus christ and thou shalt be saved whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord shall be saved thank you for making it so accessible for everyone and uh, lord i do pray that everyone here tonight will be on the right side of Jesus Christ. Pray that everyone here would rejoice in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is their saviour and they have great peace and assurance concerning that. But uh, Lord, if there's someone who's unsure, Lord, I do pray that you would uh, so work in their hearts tonight by your word and through your Holy Spirit that they would seek to resolve that matter uh, with a degree of certainty this evening. 
Uh, please, uh, Lord, encourage us, uh, we who know you, uh, to be outward looking. People need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving message of Jesus Christ. So help us to be good ambassadors this week. We pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.